Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi, Aaron. We got a little smaller group today. Thank you, Tosha, for taking time today to join us for a fascinating discussion. No, I'm just going to remind everybody the views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR's School of Medicine. Well, on this episode, we're going to talk about spirituality and psychotherapy. It can be a, a sort of a controversial topic and difficult to do uh, well in psychotherapy, in my opinion, but we have someone that who's basically kind of an expert in this area for this discussion we're where we have psychologist dr david rosmarin dr rosmarin is the director of the spirituality and mental health program at mclean hospital and is an associate professor in psychology in the department of psychiatry at harvard medical school he studies the relevance of spirituality to mental health and develops methods for clinicians to address this area of life he's published over 100 manuscripts editorials and chapters and has served as co-editor of the handbook of spirituality religion and mental health Dr. Rosemar's work is regularly featured by the media and has appeared in CNN, NPR, Scientific America, the Boston Globe, the Wall Street Journal, and the New York Times. Dr. Rosemar, thank you for joining us on Let's Get Psyched. Thanks very much for having me on the show. Psyched to be here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for keeping this entertaining and light, because that's how we like it here on Let's Get Psyched. Uh, first, I just going to uh, just generally, I, in my training, I did not have specific training of integrating spirituality in psychotherapy, but it, you know, being raised in a very religious environment as 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 a child and teenager, it's a huge part of one's life. And I, I, what are your thoughts about uh, how there's not a lot of training? This is my perception. There's not a lot of training out there. We don't have a lot of approaches uh, to incorporating this this major part of a person's life. Yeah, no, it's not just your training. In fact, when you were saying in my training, I was thinking, what training? He didn't <laughs> None of us did in psychiatry and psychology. I mean, you know, the number of people who've been through a single class, let alone a course on spiritual and religious issues in people's lives, it's, uh, you know, it, it just pales in comparison to anything else that we study. Um, but in, you know, when it comes to patients, when it comes to people who come for services, um, at, when it comes to people in the general population of the United States anyway, uh, we find uh, spiritual and religious themes are not only common, but in many cases, as you just said, central, central to their identity, central to their worldview, central many times to the symptoms that they're experiencing and the treatment that they need. But it, yet, yet it's a domain that we all but ignore. And what do you feel that there's some historical themes that for why it's been excluded and it's been so difficult to integrate that into psychotherapeutic interventions? Yeah, very much so. The, the history is quite fascinating. Um, uh, I don't know if you came across this in your history of psychology class, which I'm sure you took as a, as a psychologist. I remember taking mine. Um, that, in fact, uh, Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud had a fallout over this very issue. Um, the, the centrality of spirituality. Is this a neurosis? Is this a, a figment of the imagination? But more than a figment, is this an outgrowth of some sort of, you know, uh, uh, complex that people have in order to invent a fictitious reality that they grab onto, or is this a central aspect of human life and something that can give meaning and purpose and hope? And uh, I, I suppose it's more of a philosophical argument than a psychological one in many ways, 
But nevertheless, that the, the, the field essentially sided, sided with Freud on that, who wrote about it as a neurosis specifically. Clearly, he wrote he, even worse. He lambasted religion left, right, and center. Mm-hmm. And um, that became the popular opinion, if you will, with some notable exceptions, William James um, being one here in the United States um, and, and some others. Um, but uh, nevertheless, the field has, has basically became, I wouldn't even say irreligious, but anti-religious um, for, the, for the greater part of the, of the 20th century. Uh, but just philosophically speaking, now that you kind of brought, bring a, a little, some philosophical aspects of it and just the nature of being a human being, where do you place yourself on, is this a natural part of being a human being? Like, and just something that we, 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 we want to believe in these, in, in something and want to have meaning. And then it's kind of almost inevitable that you will have these beliefs. It's a great question. You know, and I, I've got, I've been asked that before, you know, the, the answer I'll give you is that it's beyond my pay grade. You know, as a clinical psychologist, you know, my job is to help my patients, the patients who are in front of me, to overcome whatever difficulties they're experiencing. And to me, when I do studies and I see that more than 50% of our patients out here in Eastern Massachusetts want to have spirituality as a part of their treatment, when I see 80% of the, literally 80% of the patients in my samples are Mm. using religion to cope in some way with their distress, when I see that certain facets of religion, the dark side of it, people's struggles, can, can account for 40 to 50% of the variance in their pretreatment suicidality in, some, in one of the studies that I published not so long ago. That makes me think, you know, it, it's not a qu- question of philosophy. It's a question of clinical practice and innovation. And how do we actually engage with patients about these issues? And that's sort of my you know, my current, my basic approach to this is as a clinical innovator, let's deal with this issue. Let's roll up our sleeves. And for patients who want to speak about it, let's figure out a way to do that. Yeah. So, you know, speaking on that, I read some studies, um, if I could share those with you, a study by Portnoff et al. in 2017 um, in the Spirituality and Clinical Practice Journal reported that a high level of personal spirituality cut the relative risk of moderate depression by half in three study in three countries that they studied, which were the United States, China, and India. And in all three of those countries, it was also protective against suicidal ideation. Is that what you're finding too? You cited what is consistent with what I've seen in the literature, mm-hmm. um, that there are a number of clear effects of spirituality and religion on mental health. One is on depression, less depression is a pretty clear and consistent effect. Like you mentioned, mm-hmm. less suicidality, the odds ratios can be uh, 0.2. You can have a fifth, the completion sui- a completed suicide just by going to religious services such as church on a weekly basis in, mm-hmm. in large scale studies in the United States. Tyler Vanderweel and colleagues have done that research here in, uh, in the Harvard system. And then finally on substance use and, and alcohol use, we find sub- substantially less right. uh, those, those are the three main areas that you find it. And I was trying to find any studies about how that works. Um, I found something by McClintock et al. In to, published in 2019 in um, Current Behavioral Neuroscience Report saying that preliminary fMRI data suggest uh, that spirituality can attenuate neural responses to stress responsivity, regulate emotion during exposure to stress, and prevent and reduce stress-related psychopathology. 
Do you know anything else about how this connection works? The neuroscience uh, of spirituality and mental health is very um, early. It's still very, it's very early stages, but there, um, there are a couple of uh, uh, studies. Uh, Michael Inslick and colleagues from the University of Toronto found something like what you're, respond- what you're mentioning, um, people who had more religious zeal, more uh, um, not only importance of religion, but they were more zealous, if you will, in their religious beliefs, um, had um, attenuated ERN uh, amplitude um, in EEG studies uh, when they were when they were engaged in a cognitive stressor. That's just mm-hmm. one that comes to mind. You know, one of the um, you developed a program or an intervention called uh, with the acronym Spirit. And I was wondering if we can kind of dive into that right now. Uh, what does spirit stand for? Why, why did you feel like this, this fit a need? Yeah, spirit is an acronym for spiritual psychotherapy for inpatient residential and intensive treatment, S-P-I-R-I-T. And it is a group psychotherapy protocol that we developed, piloted, and then eventually rolled out throughout the entirety of, almost the entirety of uh, McLean Hospital's uh, units it's been delivered to over 5,000 McLean psychiatric patients, both in the uh, uh, in inpatient settings and in resident residential settings, and also wow. in the intensive intensive treatment as well. And um, we, uh, with some uh, funding from the John Templeton Foundation, um, and also it's uh, it created a, a program called the Bridges Consortium. So they they were extremely helpful to us in funding this project. And we basically devised a clinical protocol, like I mentioned, to be able to integrate patients' spiritual and religious beliefs and behaviors into the treatment that they receive at the hospital. One of the th- the really um, interesting parts of this is that it it I, I feel like I'd never had any kind of approach. I, I felt I'd never had any approach. I was never trained at this. And this is a really great way to kind of um, approach the topic, integrate it without... Uh, without any kind of proselytizing or any kind of feeling like you're um, trying to lead them, lead the client into some sort of spiritual growth area. Can, can you talk a little bit about the philosophy and the position of the clinician as they're providing this intervention? Sure. Um, yeah, I think one of the, one of the reasons, uh, we, we spoke before about the history and the historic reasons why people avoid uh, speaking about spirituality. I think there are other reasons today, primarily a lack of training. And if we don't learn how to approach this area, then you don't know what to do. And, and I think there are natural questions that come up, such as what you just mentioned. If I talk about spirituality, am I going to be like seen as I'm, you know, proselytizing, manipulating my patients? You know, if that's a part of my identity, if it's not part of my identity, am I, am I being disingenuous? Am I, you know, is this, is, this, is this something I should be doing? Shouldn't the chaplain be doing this? Like, why am I doing this at all? Like, why, why is this a part of care? Um, what if my what if I offend my patients? What if what if I have patients who have spiritual or religious symptoms like scrupulosity with OCD or religious psychosis, and I speak to them about faith? Is that going to make them worse? Is this iatrogenic potentially? Um, what are some other questions that come up? Um, a, a lot of it is like, is this my place? Like, what do I even put in my notes? Do I put that we spoke about spirituality? What if those get audited? What if the patient? The clinician called me up the other day. It's like, can I put God in my notes? Like, did you speak to the patient about how their belief in God? Well, you know, and it, what spirit does in many ways is demystifies this topic. I've 
the, the, the spirit protocol is between 30 and 50 minutes total in a group psychotherapy format. It's a flexible protocol. So depending on if a person's on a more intensive unit, it could be a shorter, if they're on a less intensive unit, it can be a little bit longer. And it provides clinicians with talking points and materials that they can deliver spiritually integrated care. It's sort of somewhat plug and play. Like you read the protocol, go through it with the patients, provide them with handouts. Um, and it, you know, like I said, demystifies this process. And, and the goal is to be able to deliver spiritual care like you would anything else. Just like I would speak to my patients about other aspects of their identity or about other, about their family lives or about, you know, potentially financial matters, you know, things that are sensitive, sexual, you know, things about their sexuality. These are sensitive topics. I don't shy away from them as a clinician. So when it comes to religion and spirituality and faith, then we also have to have protocols to be able to do that. And that's what spirit is. In creating spirit, what were your goals that you wanted to accomplish? Primarily to be able to, well, a couple of things. One, we wanted to deliver spiritual care to patients who want to. This is a voluntary group, I should mention. People only go to a spirit group if you want to go to a spirit group. It's announced on the units. Hi, we're having the spirit group now, um, spiritual and psychotherapy group. Would it, you know, people who want to come can come. So that's, that's number one. So we wanted to be able to provide that. I mentioned before, my data suggests that more than 50% of our patients at McLean wanted to have spiritual care. So we need to cater to those patients. Mm -hmm. um, so that was one. The other though, is that I was sort of thinking, looking at the field as a whole and seeing the lack of training, like um, Aaron was saying beforehand, um, and uh, really realizing that some, something systematically is wrong here. We do need to have tools to be able to talk about spiritual matters with patients. And if this can be provide that, if spirit can provide that, at least in acute psychiatric settings, it's not for outpatient. I think you'd need something a little bit more robust for that, but at least for acute psychiatric settings, then I think it'd be a good thing for the world. And are you seeing any challenges in your trainees, any challenges your trainees face with this protocol or program? Yeah. So the feasibility of it was a big question for this initial study. We evaluated 22 clinicians who provided spirit and about 1,500 patients completed measures um, of the 5,000 who have now completed. Now it's sort of a part of our clinical offerings at the hospital, but um, you know, of those, we, we studied a good subset of them. And um, it was very well tolerated. There was not a single adverse event. And that's significant in of itself because you have 1,400 acute psychiatric patients presenting on 10 different clinical units with an array of disorders, from eating disorders, to psychotic disorders, uh, substance abuse disorders, uh, personality disorders, trauma, anxiety and mood disorders. I mean, you name it, we saw it. Mm -hmm. um, comorbidity, uh, it, was, it was a very, very challenging uh, uh, sample, some of them. And the clinicians ranged from being psychiatrists, residents, we had uh, psychologists, we had licensed psychologists in there, we had social workers, and we even had community residential counselors who are essentially post-baccalaureate students, you know, pre-graduate school, who were trained in how to do this. And the reason we recruited them is we wanted to see, like, is there, you know, is there a difference? Do the patients appreciate it more if it's one versus the other? And it's a pretty robust protocol. I mean, we didn't have any, you know, significant challenges really across the board. 
to my surprise, frankly. Um, and obviously, I'm happy with that. Yeah, that's one of the great things about this program, this intervention, is that uh, there's a lot of hesitancy about bringing it up. But yeah, you, you're right. There was no adverse incident. There was no problems. People of various um, degrees of training. If, if it, one of the big things that came out of this is that uh, we can do this. We, we can do this. We can integrate this. People want it, number one, like you were saying, and we can do it. And here, here is a, an approach to do it. You know, one of the also surprising findings is uh, that the clinician's religiosity or, or, st- or religious affiliation, uh, how, now how did that, you, you published a, a study, you and, a, and your co-authors published a study earlier this year in psychiatric services, I believe, that uh, uh, predictors, how did the clinician's religious affiliation affect the uh, outcomes? Yeah, we had a really surprising finding here. Firstly, the data was nested. So we looked at um, clinicians. We could look at uh, different demographic or religious uh, characteristics of our clinicians within uh, how that interacted with the demographic and religious characteristics of our patients in patient responses. So we, it's um, an interesting, uh, from, from a data analytics standpoint, we were able to tease this apart. And essentially what we did is we looked at religious at clinicians who had a religious affiliation versus clinicians who did not. And what we found, and interestingly, was that clinicians who had no religious affiliation, uh, the patients who attended their sessions actually benefited more than the clinicians, than the wow. patients who attended clinicians from, from, from religious clinicians, uh, than the patients who attended sessions provided by religious clinicians. And those were not um, related to the religion of the patient. So there was no interaction effect between patient religiosity and clinician religiosity it was simply a main effect of uh, clinician religiosity um, with non-religious clinicians doing better at providing spirit than religious clinicians. So what is your speculation? I'm sure you, 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 you talked about this at length with, with your, your co-researchers uh, there. Yeah, we kicked this one around a lot yeah. in the lab. Um, and we also, we actually just published a second paper on this in the journal Psychotherapy. It's an American Psychological Association journal. Um, in fact, I just got an email about it yesterday. So I guess it's in press. Um, I, I saw, I, I, yeah, I saw proof recently. I wasn't sure if it was up, but I guess it must be. Um, uh, finding that non-religious clinicians were more likely to use dialectical approach, dialectical behavior therapy, and the religious clinicians take more of a cognitive behavior therapy approach. Um, So there are sort of more skills-based, like by the book, like this is what you need to do, as opposed to um, balancing acceptance and change. They just gravitated to those things naturally. I don't know. That's a great, that's a great <laughs> sociological question. I wonder whether religious clinicians are more likely to sort of like get their ducks lined up in a row as opposed to being a little more um, balancing dialectical opposite aspects yeah. of treatment. That's where your mind kind of goes when you talk about those two things is that there's maybe a little bit more of a black and white thinking maybe going on, whereas... Yep. Uh, non-religious folks are a little bit more tolerant or more at ease, let's say, with uh, some some gray area. And they already, you're in a position of neutrality. Okay, so I, let me just take a station ID break. You're listening to KUCR, and this is the show, Let's Get Psyched. We're talking about spirituality in psychotherapy with Dr. David Rosmarin. Um, Dr. Rosmarin, another um, 
kind of interesting finding is that people who are not religiously affiliated volunteered to participate in this program. First of all, why, why in significant numbers? So why is that? And then, and they also benefited from it. So also, why did that happen? Yeah, not only significant numbers, the mode in our sample were people who had no religious affiliation at all. Hmm. Go yeah. figure, right? That's why you do research. Because if you know all the answers, <laughs> then there's no point in studying. Yeah, because most people would think that, oh, certainly religious people want this. That's why we're doing this. Well, hey, people, no, a lot of re- non-religious folks want this. Not necessarily, not necessarily at all. In fact, in my previous data suggests that about 30% of religious patients do not want spiritually integrated care, whereas a similar number of non-religious patients do want spiritually integrated care. And uh, I think that, you know, in fact, for that reason, I'll I'll just segue just for a minute. Um, I train clinicians uh, that if you're going to ask a patient one thing about their spirituality, it's, do you want to discuss spirituality with me? Is this a part of your treatment that you want to be addressed? Not your opening line. Basically, that would be my opening line. Okay, got it. That is my first question is, hi, would you like to? Well, usually if they're calling me for a consult, usually I know the answer already, right? (laughs) But but if I don't, then then I would ask them, like, is spirituality an aspect of your care, an aspect of your life that you'd like to discuss with me as your clinician? That's great. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, As opposed to, are you affiliated? Because if you're affiliated, I'm going to get it wrong 30% of the time. And if you're not affiliated, I'm still going to get it wrong 30 to 40% of the time. So it's not the question to ask. Um, spirituality is a really interesting variable. You know, it's not only about people's uh, religious lives. It's not only about affiliation. It's not only about identity. It's about people's meaning, their purpose in life, seeing a, a greater whole, believing in something higher. There are so many different facets of this that, you know, to, to pigeonhole somebody based on, you know, a demographic variable like affiliation or non-affiliation, it's, it's missing, you're, we're kind of, we're missing the point when we do that. Do you have any other kind of pearls or tips for people who want to incorporate spirituality more into their clinical practice? Yes. The second question I would ask is, uh, and by the way, these are in the spirit group. You know, we, we, we've incorporated these kinds of questions into the spirit group protocol, um, just FYI. But uh, as a one-on-one sort of individual doing a consultation, like you, I think you're a, a child psychiatrist, right? So if you're meeting with a family, you're meeting with, a, with maybe probably an older adult, you know, older teen or something like that. So the first question, again, is spirituality something you'd like to talk to me about? The second question, assuming they say yes, right? If they don't, you don't have informed consent. That's the end of the discussion. Um, but if they do want to discuss it, I would ask them, how is spirituality relevant to your symptoms? How is it relevant to your treatment? You come in for uh, depression, panic, psychosis, whatever it is. How is your spirituality relevant to that? They might need a little prompting. And usually there are three ways that it is relevant or not relevant. Um, One is that it's a resource. It could help them in some way. You mentioned the studies before. You mentioned the studies before about depression. So it could be something that provides solace, provides meaning. It's a way that they use religion to cope in some way. It's an orienting framework and who knows? You know, it's some sort of a resource, basically good. It could also be a struggle though. And this is very common with psychiatric patients in particular. They might feel uh, erroneously punished for something, unfairly or unjustly punished. They might feel that um, they don't have a chance. They might be looking at themselves and saying, how can I possibly achieve anything spiritual in my life based on who I am? 
sort of an intra or inner spiritual struggle. They might have a falling out with someone in their faith community. They might have experienced religious discrimination. I mean, who knows? And that could obviously be a spiritual distress, um, something which makes it harder for them to cope. And then the third way would be when it colors the format of their symptoms, like uh, scrupulosity, which we mentioned before, uh, religious psychosis, uh, mania you find once in a while, people who are um, hypomanic um, and have uh, hyper-religiosity, that kind of thing. Um, so those are the three ways. And I would explore those. Is it, is it positive? Is it negative? Does it color your symptoms? All three, two out of three, none out of three, what's going on there? And that would be the discussion I would have with them. I really like how neutral those questions are. I feel like I've had a discussion about approaching spirituality or religion in your clinical practice with um, psychiatry residents or medical students. And um, it is sort of a taboo topic. Um, and I feel like every person that I've talked to about it, they have their own way of going about it clinically. And, um, you know, it a wide range from more neutral to... Um, something more I don't know maybe triggering could be a word for it but sometimes you know it can be kind of one-sided in one particular religion um I yeah I just really like how neutral those questions are those are great I'm gonna have to use those yeah I think I think that um one of the great parts of this program is that uh, it talks explicitly about the struggles part, like you were mentioning, the spiritual struggles, which it might be some of the reasons why there could be some anti-religious thinking by clinicians is uh, that religion is one of the factors that leads to more guilt or um, more intense anxiety or a low self-esteem because they're failing spiritually. But I, I that that I think that's one of the one, one of the important contributions. So what are your thoughts like for this this segment or this handout having to do with spiritual struggle struggles? What is the mechanism of change? Because again, like like you're saying, you're not trying to help the person grow spiritually. It's more it's more of an exploration. It's more of a, a kind of you're 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 helping them kind of process it and sort it through. Is that, am I getting that right? That's exactly it. And I think that is the mechanism of change. You know, often with spiritual struggles. People have major existential spiritual concerns that are on their minds. They might be thinking like, God's being unfair to me. Life isn't fair. I don't have a chance. There's no way. There is no meaning here. Those are big issues. And they're weighing, they could be weighing on a patient's mind and they have never spoken to anybody about it. I cannot tell you how many times I've had a patient who said to me, I've never spoken to anyone. I haven't spoken to my family about this. I can't speak to my clergy about this because it's stigmatizing and they don't want to seem like they're like, you know, struggling with their faith. And finally, they can speak to a third party in a private psychiatric setting about these matters, get it off their chest. And I, I, people often engage in like cognitive and behavioral avoidance around these things. Like it's a, it's a big stressor. It's on your mind and you don't want to think about it. It's kind of like a trauma almost like you, you know, we, we sort of getting that emotional and cognitive distance from it, putting it on the outside. Um, but in some ways, just speaking to them about it gets them to confront it, gets them to speak about it, gets them to regulate their emotions about it. And having another party there to be able to help facilitate that, I think that is the mechanism of change, as you put it. Yeah, it's almost like exposure. It's like, yeah, you're right. It's like so sensitive, such an, a, a part of their person and their humanity, their upbringing yeah, to even talk about it, boy, that's another good point. Yeah, it's like a it's like a neutral 
safe place to talk about these spiritual struggles that don't involve uh, spiritual leaders. I tell all the spirit clinicians that it's a tremendous gift to be able to give a patient a space, a place, time, and the validation to speak about spiritual struggles that are on their minds and on their hearts. It's a tremendous gift to your patients. Is there a place online where clinicians can access your spirit protocol or program or any other resources that can help guide uh, practitioners on how to uh, incorporate spirituality? Yes. When we published the 2019 um, uh, uh, spirit paper in the American Journal of Psychotherapy, um, I uh, was in touch with the American Psychiatric Association and the, the journal editors about this. And I said, I'd really like to have the entire protocol as an appendix to that paper. Would that be possible? And they agreed. So wow. it's fully in the public domain and it's actually available as a link in that paper online. And That's incredible. Thank it, you. Well, it was great that the, they, you know, thank the APA. They agreed to do it. And I'm very happy to share the materials. Um, if somebody can't find it for some whatever reason, um, the Spirituality and Mental Health Program at McLean Hospital has a, a webpage. And uh, my contact information is somewhere over there. And if you send me an email, I'll have one of my RAs uh, shoot it out to you. And one more question. Is there a resource that you like to recommend to patients for ways that they can kind of access this? Maybe they don't want to talk to you directly. Maybe they want to do their own sort of, you know, reading at home. That's a good question. I'd be a little reluctant, especially with acute psychiatric patients, to give them um, something fully self-help that the clinician and their clinical team isn't aware of. Um, with, uh, you know, with high levels of acuity, I'd want it to be sort of integrated into their treatment. Often when it comes to spirituality, people are, um, a little bit stigmatized speaking about it almost. So I think that can potentially backfire. Um, but I do think that patients should advocate for themselves and if they want to speak about it, or if they want spiritual care, talking very openly with their clinicians about it and making it known that this is something that they'd like to do. Mm-hmm. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today we talked about spirituality in psychotherapy with psychologist Dr. David Rosmarin. Dr. Rosmarin, thank you for joining us on Let's Get Psyched. Thanks for having me. And thank you to our co-host, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com. And you can also listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. If you like tonight's show, you can please follow us and post a review. You can also write to us. We answer all our questions and comments. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. I've been your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. 